You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Hey, if you've got a copy of God's Word, I'm going to be in Mark 7 in just a second. But I want to do a quick intro of the series that we're stepping into. A brand new series, six weeks long. It's going to be led by our teaching team at our church. And that's it right there at his feet where true life is lived. We're going to be looking at six cool, amazing gospel narratives where Jesus comes along and meets with amazing people. And we're going to be walking through some amazing lessons through it. Flat out, the sermon series is going to be amazing. You got it. Here's the stories that we're looking at. Jairus and his daughter, Mary and Martha in the kitchen. Remember that one? Where the sinful woman comes in and wipes Jesus' feet with her tears. How about the, uh, the, 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 where, the, where the man is possessed by a, a legion of demons? Or where there's 10 lepers and, and only one comes back? These are the stories that are ahead for us today, including the one that's in front of us, which is the Syrophoenician woman. But there's some, some common threads that are happening in each of these stories that we'll see. Uh, this common thread looks like, first of all, you're going to meet a lot of desperate people. You're going to meet some people who are hurt. You're going to meet some people who are filled with anxiety, some people who are struggling with sickness, some who are facing death, some who are socially outcast, and then you're going to meet some that are trapped in bondage. There's a common thread in this series of desperate people. Every single story will highlight one or more. But there's also a common thread of a great hero that meets with desperate people, the hero, Jesus Christ. For the hurt, you're going to see he comes and comforts. For the anxious, he calms. For the sick, he heals. For the outcast, he brings near. For the dead, he raises to life. For those trapped in bondage, he sets them free. So, so listen, if you're in that place, maybe even recently, struggling in hurt, struggling with anxiety, fear, uncertainty, sickness, maybe even facing death, this series is going to be a great series for you. In fact, I think this series is going to be a great series for our entire church because all that you are going through and all that we are going through, I need this teaching. I believe I need this teaching, and I believe that you do as well. At his feet. What a great picture of where life needs to be lived, independence upon the Lord, finding answers to all of life's hurt and all of life's pain at the feet of Jesus Christ. But if I can be honest with you, I'm not there enough. And I pray that as we go through God's word today, you're going to be struggling in that in your heart and saying, I need to be there as well. Lord, lead us. Lord, lead us. Quick intro for our series. Now, let me give you a quick intro for our passage today. Today's passage, today's truth uh, takes us to Mark chapter 7. In fact, the title of today's message is this, at his feet with faith, with faith. So that means that we are talking about faith today. Now, that's not faith like the prosperity gospel preachers will say. You know, faith is, is getting what I want from God. If I do this step, God will give me what I want. That's not faith at all. And faith is not what the, what the atheists would say. Faith is, oh, pretending to know things that you actually don't know. F- or faith is belief without evidence. That's not faith at all. We're not going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about how the Bible defines faith. And here's what the Bible says about faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. It is Dead certain in my heart 
that what I have heard of Jesus is true, what I know of God is true, and I will walk in that way. That's faith. I believe it. I'm sure of it. I'm convinced of it. Here's what one writer says about faith. He defined it this way. Trust or dependence on God based on the fact that we take him at his word and believe what he has said. This is not rooted in hope or wishful thinking. This is rooted in the sure and certain knowledge of who God is. It's certain conviction. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. Now, why is this story all about faith? Well, you know how when you can read in the Gospels, you know, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, four different accounts of Jesus and his life from different perspectives. You know how you can read one story in one of the Gospels and then flip it over to another Gospel and find that same story there? You know what I'm talking about? And then you can see some neat things that are a little bit different that one writer wants to highlight and the other writer chooses not to highlight. Well, in Matthew's gospel, we find this story as well. In fact, in, in, in Matthew, in, 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 he intentionally chooses to bring the words of Jesus out of his mouth, which says, oh woman, great is your faith. She is the complete example of what a woman walking by faith should be. She's described as being great in faith. So listen, the story that we are about to read, oh, I'm excited. The story that you are about to read is a story about an unlikely person, a desperate person who turns pro at faith right before your eyes. This is like the professional faither. I don't know if that's a word, but like if, like if you were watching a baseball game, if she, if she was the pitcher, you are about to witness a no-hitter. You're about to witness a perfect game. Here's what we should be saying as we leave here today. Oh, Lord, for great faith like this, please. Oh, God, give me this kind of faith. Let's go through God's word verse by verse. Mark 7, <clears throat> verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Let's stop there and set the scene. Remember the two ingredients for these stories. We need first a hero, and then we need a desperate person. Enter the hero. Enter Jesus. But in our story, he's in kind of a weird spot. He's in a place called Tyre and Sidon. Those are two cities, and he's in the region of them. Have you ever heard of those names, Tyre and Sidon? If you read the Old Testament, you have. Because they're, they're often mentioned, and they're often, uh, how do you say this, condemned places. They're places where God heaps condemnation against them because of their worldliness. Uh, they're, they're not approved by God. In fact, they're not anywhere near Jerusalem. They're not near Bethlehem. They're not anywhere else. In fact, they're not even in Israel at all. In fact, here's a map of it. Here's what it looks like. Down here is, is Jerusalem. Over here is Jericho, some other places that Jesus did some ministry in. Uh, here, down here is Bethlehem as well. And then, and then over here is the Decapolis where he did some teaching in. Remember, that, remember Samaria where he meets the woman at the well and, and he did some stuff up there. He, he did some healings around in Galilee. That was his great ministry up in here in Galilee. And, and then all the way up here in Tyre and Sidon. Tyre, Sidon, he's in this area right here. Now, do you know what else happened up in this area in the Gospels? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. 
Nothing happened around here. Nothing happened around here. Nothing happened around there. Nothing happened there. So why is Jesus here? Why has he walked miles and miles and miles out of the way of the rest of his ministry to be in a place that nobody knows about? Well, the text kind of gives us an indication he didn't want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. What's he doing here? What's he doing here? Well, we have a couple options as we study the text. A couple options. Here's option number one. He's, he, he has just gotten into it with the Jewish leaders, and Jesus needs a break. In the beginning of chapter 7, he's talking with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are coming up to him and saying, hey, Jesus, we notice that your disciples actually don't wash their hands before they eat. They're awful people. And Jesus, of course, doesn't stand for this. He speaks to them, and you can see in, in chapter 7, he lands the plane on verse 20 with his main point. What comes out of a person is what defiles him, not the hands that he has. It's the heart that he has. This will be Jjesus' ministry and his teaching over and over again. It's not about what's outside. It's about what's on the inside. And he has gone at loggerheads with these Pharisees back and forth, back and forth. And you know what? Maybe one reason why Jesus is tired inside is because Jesus just needs a vacation. He just needs a break from this. How many of you think Jesus needs a vacation? How many, th- how many of you think Jesus ever, ever, ever takes a vacation? When it comes to his children. Nah, nobody wants to raise their hand on that one. No. You ever dialed up Jesus? Hello, Jesus, I need a little help here. And Jesus looks at us and says, you know what? You have been a big burden on me this week, Craig. All those prayers, all that prop, all that sin struggle, there's not I need a break from you. No, Jesus is an entire inside him because he needs a break. So why is he here? Why would he go all the way to Tyre and Sidon? And only do one thing. Only meet with one person. Because he wants us to meet this person. Jesus wants to introduce us to the MVP. He wants to introduce us to one of his faith all-stars. A woman who, by the way, has zero business talking with a Jewish holy man. But who comes boldly. Look at verse 25. But immediately, immediately, Mark is telling us that this is an urgent moment. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now I want you to consider what's happening. I'm just setting the scene right here. I haven't said anything profound. Don't worry, you haven't missed the outline. Here's Jesus right now, who looks like he's on vacation. He's completely out of the nation of Israel. He's at a house where he wanted to remain anonymous in, but he can't remain anonymous. He can't be hidden. And he's interrupted boldly, might I add, interrupted by a woman who comes and falls at his feet. There's our phrase. Enter the desperate person. Why is she so bold, though? Why why is she so brave? Why is she so willing to just barge in, unannounced, uninvited, into a room to a man she's never met just because she's heard of him? Why is she doing this? Well, because she's a parent. And she's got a sick kid. And if your child is sick, it doesn't matter what walls you have to cross. It doesn't matter what fences you have to jump over. It doesn't matter how many nursing stations you have to pound your fist at. You do what you need to do because you love your child. 
It doesn't matter that this man is a Jewish rabbi on vacation. She runs in and she falls down at his feet on behalf of her sick little daughter. Now, the text tells us in verse 25, little daughter. You see that? A woman who's little daughter. That's one word in the Greek, and, and, and that's a diminutive form of daughter. There, there's daughter, and then there's little daughter. If you're, if you're speaking Spanish here, there's mija and miita. Daughter and little daughter. There's a daughter, and then there's your your little princess. This is a term of endearment. She's not describing her size. She's describing how much she loves this little girl. This little girl is precious. What you're witnessing right here, this is mama love right now, big time. And this little princess, this little girl, this precious child is at the mercy of a demon. Now, we can't dwell on this for too long in the time that we have, but that was a thing back then, and it's a thing now, still is. In fact, just a, a couple chapters from this passage in Mark, we're going to meet a man who comes to Jesus and says, can you help my son? My son is possessed by a demon, and this demon is trying to destroy my son. He regularly throws him down. He regularly causes him to go into seizures. He regularly rolls him into fire that he might destroy him, or he'll throw him into a water so that he might drown him. Can you help my son? And if the enemy's job is to steal, to kill, and destroy, then you can bet that something very similar is happening to this little precious daughter of this mom. And so, in the pain, and in the confusion, and in the hurt, and in the desperation, and in the, I don't know what else to do, she comes, she runs in, and she throws herself at the feet of Jesus. So we've, we've got now the desperate person at the feet of the hero. I love it. All the pieces are in play. If you didn't know how, if, if, let's, say, let's say Mark just all of a sudden fell asleep, and he couldn't finish the gospel. I, I, and, and he was like, oh, yeah, he kind of got tired of the story and left off. And he didn't tell you how it ended. You and I know how it ended, right? We read the rest of the gospels. We know how this story goes. We've met this hero before. We know exactly what he does. He's going to heal this kid. We know that. He's going to heal this child. It's going to be amazing. We know what's going to happen. Even if I don't have the rest of the, the passages in front of me, even if I just read verse 25 and that was all there was to it, oh, I know how it's going to end because I know Jesus. In fact, in fact, let's say Mark didn't finish it, and he just kind of fell asleep, whatever happened, and, and, then, uh, and then you and I were left to write it. Well, let me, let me finish the, the story for us right now. Uh, this, is, this is Mark 7, 26, Craig Turnbull version, and so Jesus healed that little girl. Wow. <laughs> you know how it's going to end, right? Spoiler alert, verse 30, look down, that's how it ends. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Yep, I knew it. I knew it was going to go that way. That's how he does it. That's my Jesus. He does that stuff. But listen, if the gospel writer, Mark, chose to write the story that way, we would miss those middle verses. And those middle verses are really important. If the story jumped that way, we would miss what the Lord is trying to communicate through this desperate woman's life. We would miss the lesson of faith that is there 
for all of us right now. We would have a story that would be fantastic of how Jesus rescued one poor little child. But we would miss how this story is for me. This story is for you right now. We would miss the most important things that are being said. We would miss how to have this kind of great faith in our lives. Now, I believe that God has assembled, I believe this because he, he does this every weekend, like he does every week here, a great deal of desperate people in this room. There are people in this room right now with struggles in our home and saying, Lord, please do something. There's people that right now that are struggling in their finances. There's people that are right now that are struggling in their marriages, that are struggling with their children. There's people right now that are struggling with their workplace. There's people right now that are struggling, every one of us struggling with the sin within us. We are desperate people. Lord, Lord, please do something. And with the struggles in our health, the struggles in our finances, and the sin that wants to take us down and take us out, we're crying out, Lord, please do something in our lives. Please do something. There's a layer of desperation, isn't there, in all of us? Now, I don't know about you, but I want the kind of faith that sees the kind of fruit that verse 30 has for me. I want to see God do amazing things in my life and change me in this way also. I want the kind of faith that the Syrophoenician woman has. Please, God, oh, Lord, give me great faith like this. I want to be at his feet filled with this kind of faith, to see the Lord change me, to see the Lord use me, to transform me, to grow me, to change my family, and to move in circumstances that are causing so much pain. Oh, Lord, please, for great faith like this in my life. Now, how do you get there? So how do you get it? That's a very simple question. And to answer that question from our text, those middle verses, we're going to do that. In fact, I want to put in front of you a very simple equation. This will be our math le lesson that we'll fill in, okay? Blank plus blank equals great faith. Now, let me warn you right at the beginning here. You can't mess with the equation. You can't, it's not like math where you can put it, change the number here and change the number there and get the same kind of sum at the other side. It won't work that way. We need this essential ingredient and then this essential ingredient in order to find great faith in our lives. You can't mess around with it. If you fix it or move it or muddle it, you won't get great faith. Both of them are essential. So let's get into it. Let's, let's fill in that first blank together. Verse 26 again. And by the way, I still have not given you the outline, which I know you're annoyed by, but give me grace. Verse 26 again, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now the middle verses. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And all God's people said, what? <laughs> what did you say, Jesus? Did I read that right? Let the little children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Dogs. Dogs? Dogs. In our modern mindset, we would say, well, maybe he means like, like, like pets, dogs, like cute fluffy dogs that sit on your lap that are really well-loved in the family. No, that's not what it is. 
This is a, a subsistence culture, scratching out a living. You don't have fluffy white dogs. You eat fluffy white dogs. <laughs> Maybe there's a lesson there. <laughs> Here's the truth. Dogs, dogs, was a Jewish term for Gentiles, outsiders. It was used as an offensive term. You're not a fluffy and cute dog. You're a scavenger. No matter how you look at this, Jesus is calling this woman a dog. But that's confusing, isn't it? That doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't make sense because in, in the beginning part of chapter 7, he has just said, listen, it's not what's on the outside. It's not the dirty hands. It's the, it's the heart that's on the inside. I care more about that. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because it doesn't jive with everything else I know about Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't a racist. What's going on here? What's going on here is that Jesus has just pushed this woman. But it's not been a push away. It's been a push that draws her near. With this phrase, he says essentially, I came for the children, and I can't toss the food to the dogs. And then we can picture Jesus leaning in and looking at her and thinking, come on now. Come on now, MVP. Come on now, MVP. Let me hear you say it. Let me hear your faith. Let me hear you declare who I am. Tell the world, come on, my little daughter, share. And the woman understands the imagery, doesn't she? She understands. She, she's a Gentile. She's in a Gentile province. She's away from Israel. And barging in on a Jewish holy man is not only rude, but it's also inappropriate. And then begging him to heal her daughter. She understands that what Jesus is saying right now is not a racial slur, though. It's a theological truth. The Lord knows that too. And here's, here's where the desperate mother becomes a Hall of Fame faither. Oh Lord, for great faith like this. Verse 28, this is the central verse in the passage. This is where it all hangs. Pay attention. Verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, I want you to see this. I want you to look at how great this woman's faith is. The whole passage centers on this verse. She understands what Jesus has just said to her. You're right, Lord, she says. Did you see this? Yes, Lord. You're right, Lord. You're right, Lord. I don't deserve to sit at the table. I don't deserve to get the food from the table of the Lord. I know who I am. I'm unworthy. You notice that she doesn't stop and try and defend herself? You notice that when Jesus says, says this, verse 28 doesn't read, how dare you, Lord? How dare you speak to me like that? You're not even in your own country. You're walking around in my land. How, how can you talk to me like that? I'm a suffering mother. You don't even know me. How can you speak to me like this? She doesn't do this. She doesn't defend herself. Because... Something has happened in this woman's heart. She doesn't defend herself because there's no defense. Yes, Lord, 
I'm unworthy to get food from the table. Yes, Lord, I don't deserve to get that food. And that, and that is the first necessary piece for great faith. And now the outline. Point number one, great faith begins with a deep humility of self. A deep humility of self. He says to this woman, why should I help you? You're a dog. And she says, yes, Lord. I am who you say I am. I'm not here because I deserve it. I'm not here because I, I, I've earned it. I'm here because I need it. I'm not here claiming my rights. I'm here claiming my great need, Lord. I don't have anything to give you. I haven't earned my way into this room right now. I can't obtain what you want me to obtain. I'm just here telling you that I'm needy, and I can't do it, and I need you. I'm nobody special. I'm in constant struggle with myself, my sin, my selfishness. I don't deserve the grace that you can give me, but I need it, Lord. And you can do it. Great faith begins with a deep humility of self. She doesn't deserve to sit at the table and eat the bread. But you know what? Neither do I, and neither do you. This is the message that this book in front of you communicates over and over and over again, that we are not worthy. We are not worthy to come to him. And this is a message that's way far out from what the world is teaching, isn't it? The world is telling you, you deserve it. You've worked hard. You should take a break. You're amazing. Doesn't the world know how amazing you are? You get to decide what's right. You're wonderful. But that's not the message that this Bible communicates. I can think of no better passage to illustrate this than, than Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, speaking on the nature of who we really are apart from Christ. Verse 10, none is a righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And then the last slide. In their paths of ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And then the real problem, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I am not worthy, is what that says. I am not worthy. Now listen, one of two things is either happening right now. Either you're sitting there and you're saying, this is ridiculous. There's, an, there's indignancy rising in your heart. How dare they say that about me? You don't even know who I am. You're either saying that, or you're saying, that's who I am. Yes, Lord. What the Lord is saying about me right now is right. That's who I am. Now listen, the Lord uses one of his Hall of Fame faithers to teach us something. And maybe, maybe the Lord is leaning this on you right now. Maybe it's through the people in your life that you can't fix you feel helpless in. Maybe it's through the circumstances in your life that just seem out of control. Maybe, maybe it's through the hurts or the pain or the illnesses showing you what's in your heart. 
to humble you, to break you, to crush you, to convince you that you are smaller, way smaller than you thought you were, and way smaller than the world tells you that you are. Now understand this. If that's happening, that is a gift of God. That's a gift of God in your life. Instead of you beating your chest and saying, I'm, you are wrong about me. You are wrong. I deserve this. I deserve a better life than this. You're sitting there at his feet, and you're saying, you know what? You're right. I don't deserve anything from you, Lord. I am who you say I am. Listen, until God gets our hearts into this place, a deep humility of self, you will not find the great faith that you need to live in this life. Until you become way less, great faith won't happen. Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City. He wrote this, and I think this is brilliant. This is the gospel. He's speaking about this passage. If you say, I see, Jesus says, you're blind. If you say, I I'm blind, Lord. He says, finally you see. If you say, I'm all right, he says, you're condemned. If you say, I'm, I'm condemned, he says, all right. I took your condemnation for you. That's a deep humility of self. Until you can say, I can't do it. Until you can say with the Syrophoenician woman, yes, Lord, I am who you say I am. You will not find this great faith. Great faith begins with a deep humility of self. Let me put this again in our simple formula, make the words a little bit easier for us. Here's the first part of the equation. Little me plus, oh, the suspense. What is it? Listen, great faith begins really, really low, really, really low. But then now, watch this. It's going to soar super high. Look at the other half of her response in verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord. There's the humility. Yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What she's saying in the other half of her statement is very, very critical. Yes, Lord, I know that I'm not worthy to sit at the table, but I'm not asking for a seat at the table. I'm just asking for a crumb that could fall from your hand. Because here's the thing, even a crumb from your hand is all I need. Even a crumb of what you have to offer is enough for me. Just give me that. I don't deserve any more, but please just give me that. You can do that. You are great. You are glorious. You are powerful. Just give me a crumb, Lord. Great faith begins with a deep humility of self, but then this, point number two, great faith ends with a soaring confidence in Jesus Christ. A soaring confidence. You know what? She says, you're right, Lord. You're right. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to sit at the table. I don't deserve to get the food from the table of the Lord. I'm not here, though, because I'm worthy. I'm not here, though, because I deserve it. I'm here because I'm needy, and I'm here. I'm here because of who you are. I'm here because you are merciful and kind. I'm here because you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I'm here because you are powerful. I'm here because you can do anything. 
I'm here because you can forgive. I'm here because you can repair. I'm here because you can reconcile. I'm here because you can carry me and you can heal me. You can raise the dead and you can save me. I'm not here because of me. I'm here because of you, Lord. I need you. This isn't a crumb from anybody's hand we're talking about here. This is a crumb from the living God's hand. And that's all I need. All I need is you, Jesus. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? Remember the story of the prodigal son? This is in in Luke 15, where he goes away, he blows his inheritance, and then he's out taking care of pigs, and he's eating pig slop. And then he comes to his senses, and he says to himself, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but here I am starving with hunger. And so what's he do? He rehearses how he's going to turn and repent and, and, and the humility of self that's been placed into him. Now he recognizes, what am I doing here? I need to go to my father. My father is great. And the humility of self meets with the greatness of his father. And what does the father do? Runs to him and wraps his arms around him. And grace flows from the great one to the humble one. How about Isaiah? Remember the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, where he has this vision of the Lord, and he sees this God is great and awesome, and he sees the glory of God, and in the moment, he's humbled, completely leveled in this, and he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me, he says, and humility pushes him down, an understanding of who he really is, and he cries out, oh, woe is me at the greatness of his God. What happens, the angel comes with the tongs, places it on his lips, the coal, and heals him. And the greatness of his God meets with the humility of Isaiah, and grace flows to the humble. Or how about the book of Job? The ending of the book of Job, where Job's asking God, where's God, where's God? And then God comes, and God challenges him with these questions and blows Job's mind as he sees the grandeur and the glory of God. And he says at the end of the book, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I know who I'm really dealing with now. And I repent and despise myself in dust and ashes. What happens there? I'll tell you what happens. Soaring confidence in his God has met with deep humility and grace has flown, flowed down to the humble. Now look at the results for the woman in our story, verse 29. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. Remember Matthew's gospel, O woman, great is your faith. For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The humility of self has met with soaring confidence in Christ. And grace has flown down to the humble. O woman, great is your faith. She gets it. She gets it. Great faith begins with a deep humility of self and ends with a soaring confidence in Christ. That's the combination that produces great faith in our lives. When I'm humbled and he is exalted, when I see myself for who I truly am and I see him for who he truly is, then great faith grows in the space between. So let's fill out that equation there. Little me plus big Jesus equals great faith. There it is. If I'm little, in my eyes, in my heart, if I am low and Jesus is high, great faith has a room to grow and to flourish in this. Remember I told you, like, if you, if you mess with the equation, you don't get the same results? 
Let me show you what it looks like if you mess with the equation. If, if, if something's off in the equation, here's what happens. Let's say uh, Jesus is little and I'm little. Uh, uh, despondency hits in. You know, despondency, depression. Oh, I'm the worst person I've ever met. I can't believe how sinful I am. I can't believe how hopeless it is with me. I can't do this. I can't li- I'm the worst person ever. And you know what? I'm so far gone that not even Jesus can help me. There's no way that Jesus can do anything in my situation. It's so painful. It's so tragic. Nothing will stop what we're going. Despondence sets in when I am little and Jesus is little. What about if I'm, if I'm big and Jesus is little? The little arrogance sets in. Look at me. I'm amazing. I'm just like the world told me I am. I'm amazing. I'm just like how my mom pats me on the back all the time. I am amazing. I am the best person that I know. Look at me. Everyone should want my autograph and be my friend. What about Jesus? Ah, uh, well, that guy lived 2,000 years ago. What did he do? I don't need Jesus for my life. I'm amazing. Why would I need someone like that? That's a crutch. I don't need a crutch. Look at how strong and confident I am. If you mess with the equation, you don't get the right answer. What about if, what about if, if, if I'm big and, and Jesus is big? Well, then you get indifference. Look at you, Jesus. You're amazing like me. The two of us are amazing together. The only two who have ever walked the earth. How great are we? Amazing people. Look at us. Jesus, you gave a great model of how to live life. I'll just follow the model, but you know we're doing pretty good on my own. I've got it on my own. You know what feeds into all of these? That's pride. This one here is pride. And this one here is pride. Thinking too much of self and too little of who God is. But what happens, what happens if the equation comes right and I get the right thing? Well, there it is right there. That's where great faith lives. When I am little and Jesus is big. When I am understanding myself as God's word tells me I am. And I'm understanding God as he is revealed. That's how great faith is found. And that's what life looks like when I live great faith. Seeing myself as I really am and seeing Jesus in his glory and his mercy, that's faith. That's great faith. And that, by the way, is a life that God never lets down. That, by the way, is a life that God never lets go of. That, by the way, is a life that God does amazing things in. A.W. Tozer, he put faith this way. He said, for true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam first stood up on the earth has God failed a single man or woman who has trusted in him. That's the promise for those who walk by faith in Jesus Christ. God will never let you down. He will never let you go. He will never disappoint you. He will hold you until the very last day of your life. If you walk by faith, you can trust in his faithfulness to you as well. So listen, if I, if I were you right now, and I am you because I'm like you, struggling in this same cycle over and over again, finding myself in those other boxes on some days, on most days if I'm willing to admit it. How do I get to this place of of great faith? How do I pursue this in my life? I need to pursue that humility and I need to pursue the glory of who God is. I got three T's for you as I close. And and this will help you with understanding how to apply this into my life. The first T is truth. You need the truth spoken in your life every single day. Every single day, as you open up God's word and see yourself as you really are and open up the word of God and see God for who he really is, the truth of God's word begins to transform you in your life. You need the truth of God's word. You can't walk outside in the world every single day and hear the world's message to you every single day and expect to have great faith. You can't do it. 
Listen to me. You can't live by faith unless the truth of God's word is in your life, telling you what's actually real in this life. You need truth, and you need it daily. Here's the second T. You need time to talk or talk time. You need to talk to the Lord. If I were you, I would ask the Lord, maybe even today, Lord, where am I failing in this? I want this kind of great faith. Where is the pride too high in my life? Where have I diminished you? Where have I made you really small in my eyes? Where have I made myself really great in my eyes? Where have I, have I fallen into areas of despondency and, and filled with self-pity and have forgotten that you can do everything and anything in my life? Where have I forgotten that you can save anyone, that no one is too far for you? Where have I made you too great, or you too little, and me too great? I would have that time and talking with him. The last thing you're not going to like, it's a tea given by God to those he loves, which is trial. Do you notice what brings this woman to this place of great faith? It's not that everything is sunshine and roses. It's that her precious little daughter is sick. Maturity believes this, even though it's hard to hold on to it. But the trials that have been brought into your life are brought in by a sovereign God who loves you and who is drawing you to this place of greater and greater faith. Maybe that trial for you today, you need to be seeing more as a tool that God is using to pull that faith from your heart, leaning into God. Maybe today even saying, God, that marriage right now, that crisis right now, that family situation right now, that financial situation right now, I need you to do this. I can't do this. Maybe God wants you to come to the end of self to see his great strength carry you in this. Truth, time, and trial. That God would be exalted in my life and that I would be humbled by him. Little me, big Jesus, equals great faith. Let me pray. Lord, I love that when you are high and exalted in my life and, and I am in the right place of humility, more than just faith rises in my life, there's also a sense of worship that rises as I begin to see you for who you really are and me for who I really am. And then to begin to open up your word and to realize, to hear over and over again that you love me. As great as you are and as weak as I am, you love me. You love me so much that you gave your son for me. That he came and he suffered and he died for me. Several chapters later in Mark, Jesus will give his life up willingly and die for those who would love him. He will literally die for this Syrophoenician woman and pay for her sins. The great God of ages gave his life for me. Be high and lifted up in my heart, Lord. Make me low. Bring me low. That I might see you as exalted. That I might understand more deeply your love for me. That I might walk by faith in this life. God, I pray that even as we close our time together, in song and in worship, that, that, that we would see just that. 
that you be lifted high, that we be brought low, and that there be freed hearts to worship you. How great is our God that he would love ones like us. And yet we are greatly loved by him, adopted as children. Lord, lead us even as we close our service together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.